0: Let's um, let's begin by praying. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together to study and to learn more about you through the Book of Ruth. God, I am excited about what you have to teach us and I am just uh, looking forward to what you're going to do in not just the lives of, of our women, but in, in the life of our church through our study of Ruth. God, open our minds and our hearts to what lesson you have for us to learn today. Amen. So today, uh, Andrew has an audition for the school play. The Mannheim Central High School is putting on Robin Hood. He has never done theater before, but he is excited about this and we are all for it so um he he talked about it he talked about, they they had a um a, a zoom meeting with the whole people who were interested and the the teachers who were leading it and he comes back and he's he's like I had to print out all these papers and here's this You know schedule and forms for him to fill out and it's an extracurricular activity so he had to fill out the COVID release form and all that stuff for it but um he (laughs) when he's talked about what role he wants to try out for he says he wants a smaller role because this is his first time to to actually do it we joke that he doesn't want to try out for robin hood because robin hood has to kiss maid marion Fourteen-year-old boy, and you know, (laughs) but he would honestly be just as happy to be one of the merry men. He's not concerned about having too many lines. He wants to learn and experience what theater is, Uh, and and he's perfectly capable of doing it. He's been practicing his audition monologue, and and he he really does have, I don't know if it's talent, but it, because I'm not a theater person either. But, uh, you know, he, I think he's capable. But when you think about putting on the play Robin Hood, you think about the character of Robin Hood, they would have the lead role, they would be on that schedule that he printed out, they're the one whose name was on every scene that has to be at every practice uh they would have most the most lines and the most time on stage and now you're all thinking what does this have to do with Ruth right (laughs) but but when we think about the book of Ruth we think about Ruth having the the lead role in Ruth however this book is different we're going to see that the While the title of the book is named for the character Ruth, in reality, the author is literally directing attention away from Ruth. Ruth speaks the least often. She has the shortest speeches. Based on dialogue, based on the number of words spoken, it should be the book of Boaz, believe it or not. Based on the plot, it should be the book of Naomi but it's not. It's the book of Ruth. And this fall, we're going to be spending time looking at the book of Ruth, looking at the character of Ruth. And we're going to dig into this unique book and see why it's named the book of Ruth. And so I am not one that's going to speak all the time. So when you think about Ruth, either the person or the book, what are some things that stick out in your mind? And you have to speak really loudly so we can all hear you. Diane's got something. Well, she loved her mother in law. Yeah, a love to her mother in law. Yeah. She gave up her own people. She gave up her own people. Yeah. Yeah, redeeming the loss. Yeah. And then those last few lines in the book where we see that she is a, an ancestor to David and therefore in, in the lineage of Christ. Um, so, so There's a lot about Ruth, and we're going to unpack even more of that over the coming weeks. Uh, The New American Commentary says this about the Book of Ruth. The Book of Ruth is one of the most delightful literary compositions of the ancient world. The narrator is a master of painting word pictures. He skillfully employs the techniques of dialogue, characterization, repetition, reticence, ambiguity, suspense, word plays, inclusions, etc. to produce this moving work of art. But what is it about this picture that moves the reader? And what are the points he seeks to get across? Although Ruth is a short book, it is complex in its plot and subtle in its development of themes. So I don't know about you, but I'm excited to dig in. Just as a preface to this lesson, previous times that I have taught the book of Ruth, this has been two lessons. So I have condensed it down to one. (laughs) <laughs> but it's going to be a lot of information. Just my apologies in advance. <laughs> um, as as we begin, in your book, you've got the, the handy, it's called an at-a-glance chart. And if you don't have a book, Elizabeth can get you one. Um, in that first column, you're going to see author, date, purpose, keywords. We're going to be doing some of this first column today. Um, that's the the first part of what we're going to do. But we're going to begin by reading Ruth chapter one, verses one through five, and it's the the ESV is what's in your journals, which is what I'm going to read out of. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the, the, name, of, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left with her, without her two sons and her husband so there's, with the book of Ruth, there was never a doubt that it was part of Scripture. Uh, it, was, it was always, um, whoo, switched my page on myself, sorry. It, it, was, it was always a, a part of, of the Bible, of, of the canon of Scripture. Um, in fact, Ruth may have initially been included with Judges, there's some idea of that but some hebrew manuscripts place ruth immediately after proverbs what's at the end of proverbs the proverbs 31 woman and so you have the proverbs 31 woman and then the book of ruth and so there's some um some idea that that those uh not that ruth not that proverbs 31 was about ruth but that they were trying to give examples in, in the order that, that some of the manuscripts put it. Um, there's agreement among many early manuscripts about the content that's in Ruth, so it's, there's, no, there's no doubt about the validity of the text, about it being, uh, being true and being uh, what, what was originally intended for the Bible. The, like many books in the Bible, this one doesn't give us an exact who was the author. Um, however, most, most people attribute it to Samuel. And uh, Samuel was, was the prophet, and he was also keeping some of the history at that point in time, so on your at a glance chart you can you can write in there for author you can put unknown likely Samuel see you've already started filling it in then it doesn't have to be uh, doesn't have to be too overwhelming then if we um, And while I'm going to mention the theme and the purpose of the book here, I, I don't want us to fill that part in until, until later. So, um, Because there's several ideas and concepts that I'm gonna talk about. Um, I don't want us to focus from this point on only one theme. I want us to be able to to sort of be open to to wherever God God leads us before we write out what our actual theme is. So that part's going to stay blank on your chart for a little longer. But but one of the the things we've um, one of the the uh, themes the main themes of the book is is that that Naomi is completely emptied of everything of her 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 home. Her food was in a famine and all of her male support. But in the end, she experiences complete filling through her daughter-in-law. Um, another concept is, is the concept of, you know, when you say it in Hebrew, you have to do that like thing. So, but it's hesed, but it starts with that, that funny noise, right? I can't do it well. That's why i'm not a hebrew scholar but but that's one of those hebrew words whose meaning isn't captured in just one english word um, it's it's a, a strong relational term that wraps itself up in a whole cluster of concepts it's, it's all the positive attributes of god it's love mercy grace kindness goodness loyalty benevolence faithfulness it's the quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. If you were in church on Sunday morning and heard the message on Psalm 63, that's that same word used for love in Psalm 63 is this Hesed concept. Um, I have it marked on the backside of your at-a-glance Chart. I have it marked there in your keywords, just so you know it's not one you're going to actually see, but you want to sort of be aware of those um, those times when it occurs. When you see that that uh, above and beyond kindness, you see that above and beyond love, you see that faithfulness and devotion. You just want to be aware that's what that's what that means on your keyword chart. That's one of the things you want to, to just notice and make note of. You can put a little star next to it or whatever you want to do. That's the that's the purpose of that on your um, on your keyword thing. Uh, another theme is is redemption uh, through, in particular, the kinsman redeemer, but uh, also just through th- of, of Naomi being finding redemption through Ruth. God's providence is throughout. And then an, another theme of the book that we're going to look at is the prayer and blessings that are throughout the book. And that's another one that's there on your list of keywords that you're going to want to mark some way, but it's not like just the word prayer is, is in, in there. Um, you know, so those those are just all sorts of different themes and ideas that we're going to touch on as we go through, um, as we go through this book. And it's, it's some of those things and that are going to stand out a little more to you than others. And, and that's where you're going to come up with your, your own theme, or we'll work on several options together, but where you're going to pick which one you're going to write in there for your theme. Um, Ruth, again, is is a unique book in terms of its purpose. Um, Some books, like Luke and Acts, for example, they directly tell you their purpose, and Ruth doesn't. Ruth is a beautiful and enjoyable book, but it's not just an edifying short story. Uh, Ruth isn't a love story, and while it is a royal birth narrative, um, it's not just that. There's more to it than just that, Um, and I I should clarify, the royal birth narratives, a lot of times in this period, you would have the birth story for the king, there wasn't that for David. David wasn't in the line of, of a bunch of kings, um, and so this would be considered his birth narrative because it was his, his family, his family line. Um, so while it's not exactly a birth narrative, it's the thing closest to it that historically exists for David. So, um, yeah. So, the, but the purpose of this is just. it's, it's many fold. It's, it is, it is the edification. It is the, the encouragement, but it's also just the reminder of all those themes that we talked about, about God's providence, about redemption and, and things like that. Um, So then if we get to, we're going to reread verse one. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So if you remember last week, I talked to you about those observation questions, those five W's and the H. And so here we're going to start answering some of those observation questions. We get the when and the where. And so the, the when... When did this take place? In the days when the judges ruled. So on your handy at-a-glance chart, for date, you can put time of the judges. If you're a numbers person, like me, um, that was approximately 1350 BC to 1000 BC, roughly. So again, that was 1350 to 1000 BC um liz curtis higgs she is a um she is from louisville and she has written a number of books that i just love she's got both fiction and nonfiction, but um this one this the girl still got it is about ruth um, she's got one about Esther. She's got one about the bad girls of the Bible, the really bad girls of the Bible, and the slightly bad girls of the Bible. Uh, and but but she, um, yeah, she paints some beautiful word pictures as well. And so, I will be quoting from her several times. But what she says about that in the days, those those three little words. She says that these words always denote impending trouble, followed by happy deliverance when they're used in the Hebrew language. And the Hebrews who would have read this originally would have known that. So they would have known trouble is coming, but happiness is also coming when they read just from that first three words of the book. So so uh, that just gets us something that we miss by not having that original Hebrew. It doesn't convey that quite as well, but that's the idea they would have had when they first read this. Did I give somebody Judges 2 and then uh, a couple of different verses in Judges to read Judges 2? And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, who was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies. As long as the judge lived, for the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So in the time of the judges, and you can see it throughout the whole book of Judges, you see Israel doing this. Here's God, and they would go like this the whole time. Right? They would be close, they would obey, they wouldn't obey. God would punish them, they would obey, then they wouldn't obey, and God would punish them. And so um, in the environment in Israel during this time was just that. That they were they were in one of those times where they weren't obeying because there was a famine. And did I give somebody Leviticus 26, 18 through 20? Okay. If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of the land yield their fruit. So as a punishment, and, and God lays it out there in Leviticus, as a punishment, God will use famine. And he did, um, and he does at, at multiple times throughout the Old Testament. Now, we don't know which famine it is that that is in Ruth. We don't know if it's one that's mentioned in, in Judges or if it's one that is a, a separate one from what's in Judges. It doesn't matter. We can still tell that the people of Israel were at one of those falling away from God moments. Um the Israel if we also think about Israel at the time This was a time when, the time of the judges was a time when they were learning how to be farmers. They had roamed, you know, they had been wandering in the wilderness prior to entering the promised land. And so even though it's occurring over a a long period of time, they're still learning the ins and outs of farming, which would also make a famine be even more troubling for them. for them, uh, there was also uh, this was a pre-king time frame. While those judges acted as an authority, it was usually just a regional authority. They were judge over this area of Israel or this area of Israel. and it wasn't it wasn't constant. It wasn't that when this judge, died, That's another judge immediately took over. They didn't, um, God didn't raise up another judge. That was in the, the Judges chapter 2, um, 11 and 12 and 16 through 19, I think it was. That was in that passage that, that it talked about. He would raise up a judge, the people would then obey, and then they would fall away again before he would raise up another one. Um, everyone did what they thought was right and lots of horrible things were happening. So that was, that was what was happening in the world, in in their world at this time. And so we've got the, we've got the when and we've, and we've got the, um, part of the where, the other part of the where is where did they end up moving? and they went to, to sojourn in the country of Moab. In your journal, in the back cover, is a map. On that map, there's a red line from, um, from Bethlehem that goes to Moab. Right? That's the path they took because they couldn't go straight across the Dead Sea so they had to go up and around and down. There had to be an intentional choice, an intentional decision made to go to Moab. Um, did I give someone Genesis 19, 36 through 37? Yeah, that's me. Okay. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. And so the, the Moabites are the ancestors of Lot from his incestuous relationship with his daughter. These were a cursed people. They were enemies of Israel. Um, this was 50 miles away. And, they, um, and, and like I said, they had to go up and around the Dead Sea to get there. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6. Did I give that one to somebody? Just say it with confidence and nobody knows. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So not only did Elimelech take his family away from Bethlehem, away from Judah, away from Israel, he took them to Moab. Pretty much every time that someone brings up Moab in the Bible, it's to point out how terrible it is. And it's to point out how much God loves Israel more than Moab. Um, Part of the reason for this is they worshipped a different God. They bowed down before Shemosh, um, and that made our God very angry. Um, and then so that was that was part of the danger of uh, of living among the Moabites. And then numbers twenty five one through three. Kim. Um, can I read what it says above? Sure. sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the veil of Pior and the Lord's anger burned against them. And so he, that's right. He is a jealous God. Part of the, so part of the, the danger of of marrying the Moabites of being involved with the Moabites was was being taken away from from God. Um, it, having your children marry a Moabite would be like like today us going to Las Vegas to pick a prostitute for our sons to marry. That was the way that. That it would have been looked at. I saw some of your faces. Your faces were like, "I'm not sure about that." Exactly, exactly. And so that's the that's the whole the whole thing here is he didn't just flee a famine in Bethlehem. He took his family, he lived there, and he had them intermarry. Um. If, if we take a closer look at this, uh, this, this was a time of desperation. It was a time of famine. There wasn't food to eat. It wasn't like they could go over to Walmart and, or Giant and grab more groceries. If they didn't grow it, they didn't have something to eat. Um, this is not the only family that left because of, of famine. Think about Jacob. We go back to Jacob, one of the patriarchs, and yet his family went to Egypt when there was a famine. And what happened to his family when they were there? What ended up happening to the Hebrew people in Egypt? They became slaves, right? They left, they fled, and they became slaves in Egypt. Um, it, now, it, it's all part of God's plan, and so is this family. So is Elimelech and his family fled their country, but they, they are still part of God's providential plan. Um, my favorite word in the, in the verse, verse 1 there is sojourn. When you think about sojourn, you think about like a short sort of roaming through the country. Their short roaming through the country was 10 years. This was not, um, this was not just a short stay. As uh, Liz Curtis Higgs says, she says, People today regularly move from place to, s- to place, except for the hassle and expense, relocating is a perfectly fine thing to do. But for an Israelite family to abandon their clan and leave the land of God's blessing and provision was a grave sin, a holy no-no. They, were just turn, they weren't just turning their backs on Bethlehem and its people, they were turning their backs on God. As Warren Wiersbe, he's another one of my favorites. As Warren Wiersbe, a seasoned Bible teacher, put it, this man from Bethlehem walked by sight and not by faith, dragging his family down with him. If their departure from Judah was the first shoe dropping with a heavy thud, their unseemly destination was the other shoe. Remember our our storyteller holding the audience spellbound? The crowd just let out a collective gasp. Not Moab. Yep, Moab. The last place, I mean the very last place this family from Judah should have headed. The porous soil of Moab might have been good for growing things, and the moist winds from the Mediterranean may have watered the fields and pastures, but Moab was still off limits from Israelites. Strangers in a strange land, they couldn't even buy property there. They could only find lodging and food. And so they um, they fled what was, because we saw that famine was a judgment of God. So they fled Judah. They fled home. They fled the judgment of God to go to Moab. And they were leaving the very presence of God in the promised land. And yet God never left them. God never, for, for, never forsook them. Um, and so, so then... So that gives us the when and the where. And now we can get to the who. Uh, it says the name of the man, this is starting in verse two. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Melon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So Elimelech, that name means my God is king. His parents expected great things from him. And he went on to have two sons, which would have made his parents quite proud. But Elimelech's name means, my God is king. And when punishment came, he left his God. uh, So so that's Elimelech, would have been the leader of the family. Naomi, Naomi means pleasant or my delight, or my joy, and even sweetness. Um, if, oh, yeah, sorry. I lost my place. Israelite parents also often named their children based on what was happening around the delivery, as you've probably heard before. They would do based on what was, was happening at the time or the future they believed in for their children. And so... The name Malon means sickly, weakness, infertile. And Kilian means the pining one, consumptive, sickly, perishing, or comes to an early end. So, what did Elimelech and Naomi think about their two sons? They didn't think very highly of them. They didn't expect much from them, did they? They could have been sickly when they were born. Uh, that's entirely possible. But they did not have much hope for these boys. They were not strong male male figures, and they wouldn't likely be taking over for Elimelech. Um, and so, so, so that's. Why don't I have my? I don't... So that's our that's our main who, right? And then we had that little side note. Melon and Killian married two Moabite women named Orpa and Ruth. Well, here we're introduced to Ruth, but all we know is her name. Her name, uh, her yeah, and and so when we. We think about Ruth, we think about that, uh, the book of Ruth, we think about what an afterthought she is, even in the introductory paragraph. Um, So we don't know anything of their time in Moab. We don't know what killed Elimelech. We don't know when exactly. Uh, But Jewish rabbis teach that his death was a divine judgment for leaving. Um, But the book of Ruth, we have to note, the book of Ruth does not point out any wrongdoing worthy of death. And Jesus doesn't use him as an example the same way he did Lot's wife. And if we think about what, what did Lot's wife do? She turned and looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt, right? She turned away from God and turned back toward the life of sin that she lived in Sodom. But there is also a uh, sort of a shift in language from verse two to verse three that it's kind of hard to to see it in the English. But it's basically that that Naomi is no longer Elimelech's wife, and the sons were hers and not his any longer. Um, and so the thought would is that Elimelech died, and Naomi is the one who. Who chose to get them married? Um, partially, you know, out of out of desperation, potentially. Um, but but honestly, we don't even know which at this point which man married which woman. We just know these two women joined the family, right? Um, for context, the culture at the time, fathers were responsible for ne- negotiating the bride price for their sons. And with Elimelech dead, w- if, if we make that assumption based on the language, with Elimelech dead, we assume that Naomi had to, to figure out the, the bride pi- price. Um, the, uh, did I give someone Ezra 9, 1 through 4? I may not have that's okay. Um, we had, because we read the Deuteronomy 23 about intermarrying with the Moabites, um, that uh, <sighs> the, they weren't supposed to mar- marry, number one, outside of the nation of Israel, and definitely weren't supposed to marry Moabites. And so, so but Naomi needed help. She needed help to care for them. She couldn't do things on her own. She couldn't, she couldn't work. Um, she was concerned with the end of her family line and she needed grandsons because she knew those, those boys weren't gonna live forever. Um, so, so 10 years, 10 years goes by and there were still no, there were no grandchildren. Um, you know, you think back on, on some of those other familiar women from the Bible. We think about Sarah and, and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah. A woman's worth was based on her ability to bear sons. And so here you've got Naomi who had two sons, but her two sons were sickly, were, were scrawny, were not expected to live long. That wouldn't have been a, a really high mark for Naomi, and then you've got Ruth and Orpah, whose husbands die before they can bear a child for them. Uh, this this isn't isn't saying much for them, um, and so the so then Naomi um, Naomi is grieving. In verse five. She is left with Malon and Killian dead. She's left without her two sons, without her husband. She is lost without her family, and she has run away from God. And at this point, we have to remember, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. She doesn't have the same hope that we would today. The The... the the thought process, the mindset at that point in time, had no, no concept of an eternal life, uh, uh, of of a heaven where they would they would be able to be um, t- to continue living in heaven. They had no idea of that. They knew that God was eternal. This is Liz Curtis of Higgs again. The ancient Israelites knew that God was eternal, but when family members died, they were believed to be gone forever since there was no assurance of life after death in early Israelite history. If people expected to live beyond the grave, they had to do so through their sons who carried on their family name. So Naomi lost her family. As a woman, she couldn't own property. Uh, her parents were likely dead, so she couldn't even return to them. Um, she was most likely too old to remarry and have children of her own. She was, so she was likely beyond childbearing years. So there was her, her position was less than that of a slave. And we note there in verse 5, it says, So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She is completely alone without a man, and she no longer even has her name in there. Her identity, this this is the beginning of the end of Naomi's identity. She started out with the label of wife. She had two sons. She was a mother. And by the end of the passage, she simply identified As woman. And so when we think about our theme this year of chosen and we've looked at at our identity in Christ last week, we know that this isn't the end for Naomi. It's hard for her to see that and if we just stopped the story there it may be hard for us to see that. But but I want us to remember that as in there have been times that likely we've all been at a point similar in our mindset about our identity, about being chosen as Naomi is. And so as we go through our week this week, and as you're recalling the book of Ruth, I I want you to just think about your identity. Think about the ways that your identity has changed over time. Think about as that, that you went from wife to mother for some of you grandmother or great-grandmother even but but then also uh, as your as your identity has changed from working or from student to working to not working to working again to whatever it is your identity has changed over time but there's a constant identity that that stays forever and that's that that daughter of a king the 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 chosen and those types of things so comparing those two as you go through the week and so this is where we leave Naomi this week we've met Ruth our title character by name uh, but next week Sandy is going to tell us more about Ruth she's going to finish the rest of chapter one and so finish reading chapter one keep marking those keywords answer those five W's and an H I think